0: Welcome, Vicky. Vicky has joined us today. Thank you for Hundred Days and Beyond podcast, where we speak to all what I believe are the unsung heroes of the merger, post-merger integration, or post-acquisition integration world. The people that really get stuff done. When we look at um, M and A work or mergers and acquisitions, as people call it, it's the acquisitions of businesses where you go through searching targets, doing your negotiations, your diligence. And then putting a deal together, getting the deal signed, and then the plans or the strategic reason for purchasing a business or for acquiring an entity often then needs to be implemented. And when it needs to be implemented, then we have specialists. And my belief is that often that's where 80% of the work sits. You know, doing the deal, yes, it's all complicated and all that. But when you're doing integration work, that's essentially where all the real rough and tumble and where the nuances sit and so on. Today, we've got Vicky Talon. I'm going to read your profile quickly, Vicky, and then I'm going to introduce you, then you welcome, Salo. Vicky is a merger, acquisition, and carve-out specialist, which is something I really want to tackle today as well for operational integration and separation. Confident, versatile, and resourceful, which you need to be in this space with excellent stakeholder engagement, again, very important, and a reputation for deal speed for successful results. And I think that sums it up in a large way. I mean, there are additional things that that come up on your LinkedIn profile, and I invite the audience to have a look. But Vicky, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you very much, Dudley. I'm delighted to join you today.
0: We're really looking forward to today's episode. And tell us how you got here, and how did you get introduced into this wonderful but sometimes hardworking world. But.
1: So I was introduced to this world through KPMG. I, at the time I was working for KPMG Consulting and I joined the M&A team headed up then by a gentleman called John Kelly, who I think I could say was a mentor of mine, along with another colleague of his called Steve Muntz, who was also a big mentor. And I worked with them at KPMG Consulting and that's how I started my m a career. I'm sure we're going to talk about it a bit later, but then I dived off into more operational experience and then I have come back into the m and specific market later in my life where I am sitting now and I'm back in it and I know that I love it. I think that's one of the things that I've learned is that on my journey, I've done lots of things, mm. lots of really interesting things. But this is the thing that I really love to
0: do. I think often it's the, it's the passion, it's the love for what you do that gets you up in the morning, but also gets you delivering your best work and also finding that fulfillment. Because I think often people that end up in the wrong place or the wrong careers and that sort of thing, they might be good at it, but they never really get great at, at, the, at that particular skill or, or career. And I think you probably found that space after having a bit of a conversation with you the first time. Maybe tell us a bit about that in terms of purpose and finding that direction. How did you do it? I mean, how did you know this was for you as opposed to everything else you could have done?
1: So I think what happened for me was that after leaving KPMG, I then went off to another big four consulting firm, Ernst Young, and I worked in a completely separate field which many of my colleagues at the time, ex-KPMG colleagues, thought was very left field. And I moved into global compliance, which essentially sat within the tax division of Ernst & Young. And I was doing outsourced global compliance. It was... Very different in many different ways, but there were transferable skills. It was about project management. It was about taking a client who was already had an in-house function to an external function. It also taught me lots about commercials, legal negotiations, commercial agreements, SLAs, KPIs, all of those kinds of things. And it was a great grounding for me and I really enjoyed that, but I reached a point at which either I took myself down a tax career or I moved on and I moved on. In fact, I was moved away by a niche consulting firm. Unfortunately at the time it was the middle of the financial crash in the UK. And so then my path took another turn and I speak Spanish, having lived in Guatemala for a couple of years and worked and lived in Guatemala. And so then I moved to the foreign office where I headed up the back office function for their operations in Spain and ultimately led to the setting up of a shared service center in Spain, and Portugal, which we then moved to Portugal. So again, many transferable skills, project management, integration, as well as outsourcing and always the operational side of the business. I also, in my time at the Foreign Office, was head of the State Management as well, which included some very fascinating things, including ten graveyards and the heritage collection of art, which was kept by the ambassadorial residence and the embassy.
0: Especially if I look back at all the guests that we've had and some of the guests that I'll be expecting to have on the show, the hallmark I think is a multi-dimensional career. As you get exposed to so many different fields, if I go back to your actual profile where you talk about stakeholder engagement, I mean, there's nothing more uh, challenging than going into a government or a nonprofit where people are not necessarily driven for you know careers or that sort of thing where they're more they have different intent, you know unless they are excessively ambitious, like some uh, certain politicians. but, If you look at the general people that do the work in the background, that's difficult stuff to get your head around. And then when you go into the commercial environment, then you've got a a slightly different view of the world, different dynamic, different market conditions. Now you've got different types of stakeholders too, because government is different because you've got the stakeholders are potentially just, are the government wanting to roll out a new legislation or a plan or you have your job descriptions and KPIs, et cetera. When you work in, go into a corporate environment, you know very well KPIs and all that kind of thing kick in. And then it depends on the M&A side of things as well, which you'll get to now in, when we go through the discussion. When you're looking at private equity doing an acquisition as opposed to a corporate or a first time acquirer, someone doing the first acquisition as opposed to someone doing having being a serial acquirer, you know, those are all different mindsets. So tell us just a little bit about the stakeholder engagement and the differences, those nuances, because you're still dealing with people, but yeah. tell us a little bit about those nuances around those different environments.
1: So I think for me, the thing about stakeholder engagement is it's about people. It's really all about people. And yes, the environment can make a bit of difference. i.e., Whether you're in government or whether you're in commercial, but it's a about the individuals and what drives them and what motivates them. And I've worked with people who are highly motivated, visionary, entrepreneurial, very leading, I've also worked with people who are very driven by sheer commercial and they are just about really about the money and about the profit line. And then I've worked with people who have been. They just come in, they do their job and they want to turn up. And I think the thing about making these kind of deals work and going back to, you know, the sort of integration and separation, it's about working out what it is and what it means for the people that you're working with. In the role that I have, I'm really reliant on teams supporting me in the delivery of that ultimate objective of delivering that either separation or integration. And for that, I need their buy-in and I need their help and I need their support on a very operational level and as well at senior stakeholder. So it's. I, I think for me, the stakeholder management is one of the biggest things that make these deals a success. We can talk about processes. Everybody's got process now mm. and many people sell, I've got the best process and people say, oh, I've done it loads of times. What really, for me, it all boils down to is people hmm. and it comes down to, do you have the right team to deliver the right results? And it's just the right people in the right place at the right time. And I okay. think going back to your point, what my career has given me, eclectic it may be for many, is it has just exposed me to so many different things that I think one of the things that i right, as you know, is that I, I'm not faced by challenges or hurdles. I've seen quite a lot of stuff and I've seen so many different sort of behaviors and reactions and responses. And I just think, okay, all right, you know, and you just, you, and you can't be reactive in that sense. Mm-hmm. You've got to be intuitive. You've just got to go with what you've got in front of you and the people that you're working with. I yeah, that. and you.
0: Yeah, you know that I means that's a fantastic. Yeah, it's a fantastic answer because I think then what for me where, where it leads to is you've got a reputation for deal speed, but building relationships take a little bit of time on the other. I mean, do you find that deal speed and relationships are in conflict?
1: No, I wouldn't say so. So I, th- I think building building relationships. Yes, of course, building really solid. Long-term relationships of course take time. And I would hope that I've built lots of good relationships over time. But when you're working at deals, you've got to build trust very quickly. So you may not be building the longest relationship straight away. But you have to build trust with your stakeholders very quickly and assure them that that you've got their back and you're gonna do right by them but in in order they do right by you so that they deliver for you and you're going to help them and support them. You're not going to leave them adrift. You're not going to leave them feeling exposed. And I think you have to build that trust very quickly. But the other side of the deal speed is more about um, a lot of people take time to think and process change. And, of course, all of this is ultimately about change. And I thought that COVID was one of the most fascinating experiments of change management that we could all observe very publicly. Mm. And, you know, we saw people, I don't want to work from home. I don't want to wear masks. I don't want to do anything. And it was complete resistance at the beginning. And then we kind of got six months down the road and nobody wanted to stop. You know, everyone was like, well, I want to stay at home and I want to keep my mask on. And it was interesting because people, it took six months for people to come around comfortably to that change. Now. You can't wait for six months in deals. So you've got to find a way to, to make that happen and that change happen much quicker and drive people to make decisions probably a lot quicker than they want to comfortably. So it's about creating that place of trust and that place of comfort to enable the people to also perform at their best, especially the senior stakeholders to make decisions, which might be very difficult, very painful for them, or very uncomfortable or in some cases risky but adventurous and you've just got to give them that that comfort that they can do that with you behind them
0: yeah there was a book called the speed of trust if you recall written by the microsoft guy i think it goes hand in hand because you can't speed up if you don't have trust but you got it but it's almost in in a sequence you've got to build that kind of relationship. What is your opinion about almost a sequence in terms of you got this agenda you need to fulfill, but you know you need to build a relationship to to fulfill the agenda?
1: So I think you have to create impact at the beginning, create a positive impact at the beginning with all your stakeholders to the point that they feel comfortable enough to say, okay, I'm going to go along with you. I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, I'm not going to put my hand up and say, yeah, that's, I'm all in, no questions asked, but I'm going to put my hand up and say, I'm in. That's what you need to build very, very quickly. So you have to, to, you have to create that impact and that trust, initial trust very quickly. Then you start to, to work with somebody and the other development of trust comes further and further as the more you go down. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. I was working on a deal and I was working with an IT director and I sat in on the workstream calls and he was a bit like, I'll cover them off. And I said, yeah, but it's helpful for me to hear all the things that you're talking about within the IT workstream and to see if there's any interdependencies with anything else that's going on in the program. The other thing was that he was very surprised when he realized that I actually knew quite a bit about what they were talking about, and I was able to make some valuable input and question and challenges into the meetings. And it was just very funny afterwards. He once said to me, he said quite a bit about that, don't you? And I was going, yeah, I do. I don't know what you know, you're the expert, but I know enough to ask questions. And I know enough also to to support him. So when we got also in a very tricky situation in that particular deal, Hmm. it really hinged on the separation of the systems. And I had his back, you know, I stood up behind him and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We found ourselves in a bit more uncomfortable place, but I said to him, it's all right. I will stand there behind you. I
0: don't know if thoroughbred is the right word, but of a true practitioner who's got the ability to. Have had exposure in so many different areas, having some experience in so many different areas, having knowledge and skills in so many different areas, and then to be able to bring that as a holistic approach, but also be able to drill down into the individual component parts. Yeah. When you're busy with that engagement, we're still busy with the stakeholder engagement because I think, still think that's one of the key aspects, is you're also able to build trust because you can connect with someone at their knowledge and experience level you're not still having to learn practitioner going in and doing an integration the last thing that if it's the target company or the acquirer the last thing what they want to be able to do is to still teach you your jobs (laughs) for you to learn the environment so much so that you still need extra time so That's why I think you start talking about a reputation for deal speed and, you know, successful results. So just tell me a bit about that. I mean, tell me that
1: connection level and. Being a conductor of an orchestra, because what, you know, what you've got is you've got a team of people in the same way that a conductor has got all those musicians there who play their, the conductor does not play every single musical instrument. But they know the piece, they know the journey that they're on, and they know what it should sound like ideally. That doesn't mean they don't take input from the musicians. That doesn't mean that the musicians don't have a huge role to play and bring with them all their specialism. But the conductor is the one who brings it together. And for me, that's what I do with deals is I may not be the most knowledgeable person sitting at the table. But what I can offer is an insight to an integral, integrated approach right across the programs, a program director role. Now there are other practitioners like me who are transformation directors and do a very similar role. The difference between me and a more established transformation works called a transformation director Is that they tend to work on transformations that, you know, major projects that tend to take one to two years or even longer. I usually have weeks or months to do what I have to do. You just have to work much quicker, but with the same skills and therefore the reliance on the team around you is absolutely key. Now, I also do not want to, you know, I remember one client once said to me, Why should I listen to you? What do you know about my business? And I said, I don't know your business. You know your business. You're the person who's brilliant at your business. What I know is the process and I know what we need to do and I know the journey we need to go on. And I'm going to guide you through that process and you're going to be the expert in this.
0: I love that. That's part of this environment because practitioners like yourself who have, and I want you just to give me a bit of your sort of how you run your operation as opposed to other practitioners. So we have certain post-merger integration practitioners that will be, let's say, parts of an integration management office. If you talk about project management, you would talk about project management office. Now we just talk about an integration management office. If you have a corporate environment and they are often, they are serial acquirers, they do this for strategic reasons, they're doing some kind of roll-ups and that sort of thing. And I w- we'll talk about separations as well because often they buy and then they decide, oh, I didn't want that one. I want to get rid of it. Or strategically, it doesn't make sense anymore. It, just tell us how you operate as opposed to, let's say, a corporate acquirer as opposed to a private equity firm as opposed to maybe just talk around your business model. Like, What do you do? What What makes you different to, let's say, all the other alternatives out there.
1: That makes me sound like I'm really, really unique, Dudley, and I'm not sure that's quite the case. So, I mean, I work for PE houses. That's one of they're one of my stakeholder groups for sure. And I also work for corporate. So, I don't necessarily distinguish myself from people who work in those environments and in this space. What I am is an interim. Who people can jettison in to come and provide specialist skills if they're going through either either they haven't got the manpower that's one, or they don't have the skills and expertise in house. So if the corporate has got an in-house transformation team that has that, that, that is doing serial acquisitions and integration and possibly carve-outs. I may not add any particular value to them because they're a specialist team that are doing the same as me. What they may not have is headroom or bandwidth within their team. And in which case they might bring me in. So the fee houses, they don't tend to retain those people. They bring in people like me to come in, take them through the process. And then I would hand off to an operational team once we've done the deal or at least once we've set up the integration plan or the separate generally separation we'd see through to the end but integration can be a very long-term strategy depending on what you want to do but what you need to do right at the beginning and you talk about 100 days it's an arbitrary number but it's a nice number but that's what you know, we do is we try and say, what is the path of integration? What is all the things that we have to get in? That's absolutely critical to the deal at the beginning. And what are the other things that in the longer term strategy an organization wishes to do? And we build out that plan for that. So what do I do? I am the conductor of all of those different things that are happening within the deal and I'm jettisoned in either to work with a corporate team or to set up and lead a team for, say, for instance, a PE house. And they, do you know what? I don't have an expectation of what kind of environment I go into. I think that's one of the things I do. That's a bit different from others. I just, people say to me, would you do? We know it's a bit different. And I go, yes, i do.
0: There's a difference between marketing yourself, creating your own personal brand, and then also at the same time, helping let's call it a corporate acquirer increase or roll out or improve their brand if you like through the acquisitions or improve their i mean we talk often about synergy capture and and value creation and all those nice terms and i think it comes out there in your profile and i quite like that confident versatile resourceful i think that's that sums it up because in, in in my mind that's your brand to a certain extent it's confident it's versatile and it's resourceful in other words you are able to be put in in any position and 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 take it on and 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 be confident that that even if you don't know you know that you are resourceful enough to be able to tackle the situation and i and i think that's part of the, the attributes that 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 are critical for for being successful in this in this space and if it is your purpose to be an, a practitioner, I think that is absolutely critical. Maybe just a comments on that, because I want to shift gears and go into separations and carve-outs and how they differ from, just for the sake of our audience, how they differ from from integrations and even define what that is. <laughs> so maybe so, just let's start with yeah. confident, versatile and yeah. uh, resourceful.
1: So I think the so thing that people have asked me a couple of times is do you just parachute in and i think that's probably one of the best analogies that's the kind that's what i'm offering i'm offering for somebody to put me in to a situation it doesn't matter what it is i don't have any expectations of how anything is going to be or what i'm going to find when i get there i know what I do and while I'm going to bring process, discipline and some structure to what I might come across, but I've not got any expectations about what I might go into. And I think that is why I do say I'm versatile and resourceful, because you you and I think but it's a realist, that's the M&A market. You've got to be, you've got to be, the word that now everybody uses is agile. And i kind of stay away from it because A, it's got too many IT connotations and B, I think it's slightly overused. But, you know, you've got to be able to move and flex and change and really quickly and comfortably and safely.
0: Let's go and have a look at the differences now. You've got integration on the one end. You've got carve-outs and separations on the other end. I've had one or two people join us on an episode and some of them are starting to position themselves as separation experts. I mean, it's almost like divorce lawyers to some extent. Tell us your definition of separation, your definition of carve-out as, a, as opposed to doing an integration. Is it the opposite? Integration, the other side of the coin of uh, of a separation? <laughs>
1: So it is and it isn't, although know that's not very helpful, all, but in terms of a sort of process, mm-hmm. you start to follow some very similar processes, let's put it that way. So it starts on a quite, can be on quite a similar track, but they go down differently. When you're looking at integration, you're looking, usually you've got a number of reasons why you're doing an integration. You're doing it because you want to get market share. You're doing it because you can see synergies with your product offering and the acquiring target. You may be acquiring clients. You may be acquiring particular personnel. You may be acquiring patents technology. There's all kinds of different reasons why you might want to do that acquisition. And you you're doing it to grow, enhance, and Ultimately develop, make your business bigger. Let's be really simple. You want to be bigger and better at what you're doing generally. And so there are things that you need to do in an integration that have to be done very quickly around the time of the deal. But integration ultimately can be a slightly longer term strategy. Separation is a bit different. Separation is so integration and separation for me are the operational processes that you go through. A merger or a carve out is the deal that you're doing. So that's where I create the distinction. So in a carve out, there's been a business strategy to carve out literally a part of the business and uh, either put it up for sale or generally they're putting it up for sale. It's being sold off somewhere else either to a competitor, management buyout, various different options. And what they need to do is make that look as attractive as possible to the buyer. And in some cases, you're trying to make sure that what you carve out, you might be helping somebody by doing this carve out. So in a management buyout process, you're actually trying to make sure that business stands up on its own. And is a resounding success. You may keep some investment in it. You may have longer term strategy. i.e., you have got continued relationships with that carved out business. There may be reasons why as the seller, you really want to see that business succeed. And ultimately you want to see it succeed on day one, because that's what the whole deal and all the numbers are based on. So it can be different because what you're doing then is trying to make sure that you are separating the businesses without any damage to the parent, but ideally no damage to the carved out business. You're creating two very good, standalone, successful businesses in their own right. What you don't want to do, which is what I think some people think is carve out and separation, is carve out a business and just throw it, throw it into the bin. You wouldn't go through a carve out and a separation, then put that thing in the bin. That's not what you're doing. You're doing it because you're trying to create a strategic asset that has something of value beyond its life with you. you probably as a parent want to see that happen. And so there are things that you would do that you might not do if you were letting the business go in terms of you were running it down. You actually want to see it succeed. So you do things to make sure that it has a recipe for success. You don't want to. Yeah. And, and I find it
0: quite challenging because a separation often it means it, it used to be attached to another entity. So a carve out is partially separation, partially integration, because in the ones that I've seen. Is although the seller that wants to carve out a portion of the business and move it on, maybe it's not core for them anymore, whatever the reason, often what happens is they need to try to separate the that entity and it could be even part of their IT systems, their HR and payroll, yeah. and just the you know, just the basic infrastructure relies heavily on a let's call it a head office or a shared service component. Yeah. And now you're carving it out, so you're separating, but yep. at the same time you have a new entity that wants to take it on. Yeah. So it does seem that there, it can be quite difficult because sometimes you have, this, you have people that are not only now being sort of disappointed that they're no longer part of that group, they now being sort of said, sorry for you, but were you going there? And then someone else saying, "Hey, now we own you. Now we're going to tell you differently to you know what you did in the past." That must be quite difficult. As opposed to a wholesale M and A, where there's an a- entity that's being acquired, and there's a there's just a nice easy or well, easy. I don't know if it's easy. Simple, more simple integration that happens, where there's no external impact. Some of your experience around that. Let's call it
1: so I think for me, it's about communication, and it's really important, regardless of whether it's integration or separation, communication is absolutely key, and it's about the senior stakeholders being very honest and open. I mean, I'm not saying they have to divulge everything, but they need to be very they need to be very clear, not necessarily honest but they need to be very clear about the strategy that they're they're following. So in a carve out, you would want to explain why it is in the best interests for this business to either go somewhere else or to go off and fly on its own. Because that's ultimately what the two options. They're either going off to fly on their own, create their own wings and fly high, or they're going somewhere else where ultimately, again, they will fly better and fly higher inside another organization. I wouldn't necessarily sit on a separation and an integration on the other side at the same time. is physically almost impossible because the things that uh, I would need to do as part of this separation and the call bout require me to be very focused about my client's agenda, which would be the selling entity. And then there needs to be somebody else who's sitting on the other side of the deal, who's very interested the acquiring business and I don't think in the interest of conflicts of interest that it would help that you have somebody who straddles both sides of that deal you may do if it's very small and both parties are, very but generally the ones that I've done are bigger and so you don't you've got one person sitting on one side and I would only sit on one side so I either represent the seller or I represent the buyer and there are different things and you've got to remember that during a co out. The thing that's the prize, and the prize can be the prize is that you've got a commercial, successful, profitable business at the other side of the deal, and that requires the product or the service, the people, and to some extent the operational stuff. But the thing that is most important is what's being sold and the people who are selling it, or, and business who, the people who run the business. So that's what yeah. you've
0: really got to stay focused on. Yeah, because because if you then to add <clears throat> a, a little more, let's call it spice. What happens is you have an MBO and in, in a carve out, or you're dealing with an acquisition, but it's a it's an internal acquisition. Maybe give us a bit of a flavor because what's really great about your experience. So we've got someone who's got such a broad uh, background. You've done not only integrations, you've done separation, you understand carve outs and even the dynamic in terms of being buy side, sell side, et cetera. There's another element of acquisitions that most people don't necessarily think of immediately when you're dealing with integrations and MA. But if you do a, an MBO, which is the management buyout environment, now you've got managers who are already part of the business trying to structure a deal to buy out the business. Now, often because they've been employees, they don't necessarily have the funds or, the, or, or to do an outright purchase. So there'll be some leverage, there'll be other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. there will be a whole dynamic around yeah. that. I mean, that's quite complex. I mean, you're doing not necessarily an integration in its truest form, but you are trying to help the, let's call it the seller's exit and the buyers t- assume a new position. Is that something you've been involved in, and and maybe just expand a bit on that?
1: Yeah. So yes, I have been involved in in a in a management buyout. So the people, had many of the people, have been in the business for uh, in some cases twenty years, and were going off. The rationale, and that's why I said it's really key about clarity around the messaging and the communication, um, because the rationale for that business and for that buyout was because. The business itself or that, that that part of the business felt constrained within the parent and it felt that the, the management team felt that if they could get out from under the parent, they could fly, I use that analogy, they can fly a lot higher. They could grow the business and they have, they've been very successful in what they've done and you have to be quite sensitive about the information. So what we had in that situation was we had a number of kind of what are called steer codes or boards. So I had one, which were with the sellers and only with the sellers and none of the management team who were buying out sat on that board because I needed to have a forum, which I could talk to the sellers openly and honestly, without having to worry about anything, any issues that came up being divulged. And then we also had a combined board. And then the management team had their own board as well, similar to ours on the, on sales side. So you had a sales side, you had a buy side, and then you had a sort of integrated board and that's how we ran it. And you just had to be very sensitive to what information you could divulge in which one and where, and the other thing is you, in my role, you've got to be really clear about who is your boss, who is your, who is your client. My client was the sell side. Now, there were things that would come up for the buy side that were challenges, but ultimately I represented the sell side. So I had to look after my sell side client primarily and foremost, but not to the detriment of the buy side in the fact that if their business didn't stand up properly, then what were they selling? So does that make sense? So when if we damaged, carve out mm. to such a point that it lost its value, the sell side would actually lose value on their sale. So you do have to juggle. And that's where, that's where the stakeholder management is absolutely key. It needs key, because you are juggling. Mm. Different.
0: Yeah. And I've noticed in uh, further down in your profile, you talk about a thriving, ambiguous and complex environments. I think that's a really good example of an ambiguous and complex environment. Yeah. Although you do, oh, let's say represent the sales side, you have to almost enable the transaction to complete, you know, yeah. transaction complete, but to the fulfillment of it, because obviously they've signed, they're in the process. if you do pre-deal sort of yeah. work as well, but let's assume they've signed the agreements and there's the MBO now. And it's now, oh, what now we need to try and make this thing work. You sell side, you need to protect the interests of the seller, but it's ambiguous in the sense that if you don't enable the buyers, the whole thing falls flat. And there's obviously then it's court cases and it's who did that. and and
1: For us, it was about not, because we were doing a lot of the separation pre-closing of the deal. So we needed to make sure that the deal actually closed on the price that the seller actually really wanted. And so part of that negotiation was always going to be that we had carved out the business in a way that it still retained the value that had been placed on it at the beginning of the deal. So the buyer had to believe that the value was still there and we had retained value. And we did have one very, I did have one very tense moment where in part of the, Original negotiations, they had talked about the IT systems and they were going to create an absolute hard stop on the systems. And then we realized that if we did, I don't want to go into the detail, but it's very complex, what we had to deal with. But if we did this particular hard stop, it effectively uh, froze the business. And we were saying, we'll give you a freeze on the financials. Here you go. And then you take everything and all the data. But these guys needed to run their business and we needed to help them run their business in the period that they were transitioning out of the parent, because even though the deal was struck on this day in April, then they were transitioning out of the business for the remainder of the year. And so we, we had to enable them to be able to still run their business during that transition period. So what we couldn't do was do something that fundamentally stopped their business. And so I had to go back to my sell-side board and say, we need to rethink this because it presented with their, for them a number of challenges to do with data and to do with costs. There were a number of very complex things. And it was a very difficult moment because it did look like at one point that the deal might not happen because we weren't able to... Initially, we weren't able to do the deal as it had originally been constructed. We had to construct a new version of that part of the deal.
0: That's where the art and the science start coming together, isn't it? It's
1: well, it's, it's to... where the art takes over science, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and the science didn't work. So now it's about the art of the science. So it's about you know creating the best looking version of it. So if you. Guys yeah. said, that is, well, one of the fundamental differences between separation and integration is that integration, but it's based mm-hmm. on information that has been given to you by the seller, and only that information. You haven't got anything else. I and mean, you've got public information, and you've been given information that this, the seller has agreed to disclose as part well, of their disclosure. But well, you don't have anything else. In a separation, you've got all the data; it's right there in front of you. So the deal is moving all the way through that period because everybody has got more and more information. The more you dig, the more you start to carve, the more dates you, you find out. And that affects the deal. And so th- for me in my role, and in that particular case that I cited, we had to pre- I had to protect the sellers price and to do that, I had to change some of the
0: features of the deal. That orchestra analogy used, the conductor analogy, I think, <clears throat> again, shows itself. I I, w- I want to uh, switch gears a little as we come closer to the end of a conversation. I mean, I probably could... Oh, cool, I can't believe
1: you said to me it would take, uh, we would talk for a while and I am like, no, we'll talk <laughs> in 20 minutes, but
0: yeah. I got this, probably several points we haven't even touched yet. So Vicky, you're going to need to come back at some stage, but... I want to shift gears slightly just as we come to the end. And there's something, there's something that, that struck me in your profile, besides the entire profile, but something that struck me is her reputation of being great fun to work with, bringing energy and humor in the face of adversity and challenges. And tell me a bit about that because I I don't, I haven't seen that yet in many profiles, bringing us some great fun and energy and humor. How do you bring that into what essentially is really a serious conversation or multiple serious conversations? Some of your mode of operation there with
1: that. First of all, I think I put that in my profile because I wanted people to understand who I was as a specialist, they were getting, they were getting a person not just my skills. It wasn't just about and wasn't just a commodity of skills. They were also getting a person. I think that's and for them to understand who I was. It also comes to um I had a great boss once who said sometimes Vicky, you need to the phrase she used was flash the kimono. And I needed to show people a little bit of who I am. I don't think. Maybe it's not come across here, but normally I don't think I do it very well. And so I wanted to do it very, very honestly and openly, transparently on my profile. I think the thing is about deals is that as a bit of humor, I don't know. Nobody dies, right? We're not surgeons. We're not heart surgeons. Nobody's going to die at the end of these deals or live. But a business is going to die or live, okay? But it's not a human. And so sometimes I think we just need to ground ourselves into what we're really doing. And I think humor and fun is a great way just to... Just Make people breathe because I think the other thing is that during deals and because of the speed of it, people are going so fast they just don't breathe. They're just like on they're just fired up and fired up. And I just think sometimes you need to breathe. And I think what humour does is it kind of sort of cracks that mm. tension and just gives it's almost like a volcano, I what it's called, an escape hole, where mm. You can just release some air. And I think for me, that's what human does. It just allows people to just breathe for a minute and have a little bit of, you know, smile on their face instead of, oh my God, this is also stressful. Because it is stressful. It's a very stressful environment. Mm -hmm. I think people need to be able to breathe and. They're making, in some cases, some really key and important decisions for other people, really? you know, for thousands of employees. And it's scary. And I think they just need sometimes a little room to, to breathe. And I hope that's what I do. I give them that room.
0: Yeah, but also doing it with an element of elegance as well. It is pressure release and, and it is important. It is important to bring the human side of things uh, because not everybody, and I'm going to use a little bit of a sport analogy, but may or may not resonate, but for me, many teams that do very, very well are match fit. In other words, yeah. you know, when they go into a game, especially a very big game, they are match fit, they're ready for the game. They've played multiple games before. They've done all the training. They've done all the work, but they, have, they, they are continuously in matches. So they are match fit. Yeah. So when you're, when you're a professional integrator, when you're a practitioner, you tend to be match fit for stressful difficult situations when you are dealing in an environment where potentially the target this is the first time they've been acquired an mbo it's the first time they've actually done something like this yeah. um, a seller a buyer a corporate that's now decided we're now going to open up an integration management office and we just need to set it up you know it's like quick and easy you know yeah but i think i think when you match fit sometimes you could potentially be fitter you know hypothetically speaking for this environment than whoever you're playing with who your teammates are, if you like would that be a reasonable analogy
1: yes i think in terms of yes so they but i think i don't know if what you're leading to is that people can come that you, that you can be across the table with very different skill sets so you can be in front of somebody who really knows their stuff versus somebody who is really quite novice and new to it all. And so, yes, you do get that.
0: You, you would but need to ad- adapt. Yes. yes. Yeah, you would need to adapt because yeah. sometimes let's say I'm match fit and I'm ready and the stakeholders I'm bringing with me on this journey are at different levels. Yeah, You have to be able to adjust your volume, if you like, to, to different yeah. levels. And yeah. I think... That's part of the skill, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The part of it is adjusting within your own setup. So within your own team. So if you're on sales side or buy side, yeah, it depending on which side you're Yeah. You've got your own team who might not all be in the same level, but you might also be facing off to a team who's not very experienced. I've had examples where I've been facing off to a team, they're not very experienced. And in some cases. You have to kind of almost help them a little bit because they're so unfamiliar with what you're all doing, but you need them to do their side of it. So you have to coach them along as well. But also make sure that you all match fit, gives you a much better leverage in the whole deal. So making sure that you've got the best match fit team yourself. Yeah. I love but that. It, I think mean, it's back to the humor a little bit because yeah i don't know you were talking about sports analogies and i know we've probably only got a minute but i don't know if you happened to watch the wimbledon tennis finals yesterday this thing been recorded in june 2022 july say and Kyrgios got very mad in the match and he it he he couldn't at one point just let go you know his team was saying to him just relax just you could see him, he was just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And then the result, his performance was failing. And that's where I say the humor is really to Jumps needs to allow people to decompress a little.
0: And that's for me where what we call BMT or big match temperament comes in. And the ability to play the big game. I'm going to use that as my next switch into more personal. Vicky, we've got sort of two minutes left. Yes. If you go back to sports, but if you look at a practitioner and someone like yourself, you've got the ability to play in the big games. You have got that ability to have a broad, let's say, skill set that can come in, but not just that. There's that personal element there. There are so many nuances, so many skills that you don't even know. So it's that th- that thing about driving your car. I mean, when we used to drive and not do uh, meeting Zoom meetings, but where you're driving your car and you go from this place to that place and you don't recall, get how did you actually get there? You got in your car. You don't remember how many times you've adjusted the gears, the indicator, you've turned. You don't even rem- potentially remember your route. You just, you got in and you arrived. So it's that sort of automatic automation, if you like, that starts to happen in any in, in environment. You just know naturally or instinctively. What you got to do next? Would you agree with that? As you become more experienced, yes, the environments change, but having with your broad background, I, I would imagine it starts becoming easier.
1: Yes and no. Is, is my <laughs> answer to that yes? In the terms of getting in a car and driving it, I think it's a good analogy because yes, you do get in it and you just start to go on autopilot. I think the thing about merger and carve-outs is that you're never getting in the same vehicle. So you're changing vehicles all the time. One time you could be driving a truck and the next time you could be driving a small little compact. And you've got to be versatile enough to be able to drive across all the different contexts and environments that you find yourself in.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. That's a great, that's a great way to In the more serious stuff. Let's just talk a little personal if you don't mind. So. How do you keep yourself sane in this crazy world? How how do you cope with, I would imagine, long working hours and all the stresses and strains of this environment? Tell us your secret. What's your balancing activity or hobby or I don't know, whatever you want to call it?
1: I think those who knew me very, very well, my closest friends would say maybe I don't get the balance brilliantly. I think I've been very driven for a long time. And I love what I do. So ultimately that's what drives me to do um, longer hours and stuff. And I like successful results. That's what really drives me is is success. But to balance it out, I have a dog walking, listening to music, reading. And also the other thing is I, I try and stay away from too much news. I just don't think it's necessarily the greatest, but I do like to read around a lot of different subjects. Mm. And quite a few of my friends who don't have nothing to do with my work life say to me, well, God, you know so much about so many things. I think it's because I like to just read around lots of things. Mm. And I think that just helps me just, you know, delve into I can get away from stuff. I don't, I'm not just focused. I don't just read strategy books. I know some people that brilliantly got well, brilliant minds, but they show me volumes of strategy books. I like to read a bit of everything because it helps me diversify my mind.
0: I love it. Okay. there's a brilliant way, a brilliant way to end up the episode. Vicky, fantastic. I am, um, please come on again. I wanted to have a chat to you, but okay. we've run out of time, but please come back again was fascinating i think next time maybe if you don't mind share some of the case studies and things that we because i think from an audience point of view just already just an hour worth of massive value thank you very much i'm going to say goodbye to you vicky
1: thank you for inviting me dudley it was really great to talk to you and it's been a joy thank you very much
0: so thank you very much vicky i really appreciate your time I'm going to say goodbye to the audience. Thank you very much for joining us today on the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. It's the it's the special place for those people that use their skills and their drive, their passion, the enthusiasm, and in Vicky's case, even bring some fun into it. I think it's an amazing world where you can express yourself and you can be challenged. And I love that analogy of every time there's a new integration, You're getting into a new vehicle and it's not necessarily on autopilot you need to have your wits about you thank you very much for that vicky and audience please if you have any questions if you want to be a guest on the show please let us know i would like to just pop the my email address for you please email me if you have any questions if you'd like to hear of something specific within the merger post-merger integration or post-acquisition integration field if you'd like to be a special guest, or if you want to come in and add some a different view on this special world, maybe you will be you're on the receiving end of a of an acquisition. Thanks again, Vicky, and and all the best to our audience. We'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye.